ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So last week then we began the chapter Bab Ad-Du'a'i ila shahadati an la ilaha illallah The chapter regarding giving da'wah and calling to the shahada La ilaha illallah That there is no deity worthy of worship in truth Except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So let's read the chapter once again to begin with and then we'll get to the section where we left off. Who's reading? Anybody? Just take this off in here. Pick up. Why is it? There's another man upstairs. Ah, there's another man. Come in. He's up there. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قال المصنف رحمه الله باب الدعاء إلى شهادة أن لا إله إلا الله وقول الله تعالى قل هذه سبيلي أدعو إلى الله على بصيرة أنا ومن اتبعني وعن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لما بعث معاذا إلى اليمن قال له إنك تأتي قوما من أهل الكتاب فليكن أول ما تدعوهم إليه شهادة أن لا إله إلا الله وفي رواية إلى أن يوحد الله فإنهم أطاعوك لذلك فأعلمهم أن الله افترض عليهم خمس صلوات في كل يوم وليلة فإنهم أطاعوك لذلك فأعلمهم أن الله افترض عليهم صدقة تؤخذ من أغنيائهم فترد على فقرائهم فإنهم أطاعوك لذلك فإياك وكرائم أموالهم واتق دعوة المظلوم فإنه ليس بينها وبين الله حجاب أخرجاه ولهما عن سهل بن سعد رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال يوم خيبر لأعطينا الراية غدا رجلا يحب الله ورسوله ويحبه الله ورسوله يفتح الله على يديه فبات الناس يدوكون ليلتهم أيهم يعطاها فلما أصبحوا غدوا على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كلهم يرجو أن يعطاها فقال أين علي بن أبي طالب فقيل هو يشتكي عينيه فأرسلوا إليه فأتي به فبصق في عينيه ودعا له فبرأ حتى كأن لم يكن به وجع فأعطاه الراية وقال أنفذ على رسلك حتى تنزل بساحتهم ثم ادعوهم إلى الإسلام وأخبرهم بما يجب عليهم من حق الله تعالى فيه فوالله 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 لأن يهدي الله بك رجلا واحدا خير لك من حمر النعم وقوله يدوكون 
So this chapter, we started last week, and it was the chapter regarding giving da'wah and calling to the shahada, calling the people to tawheed, calling them to la ilaha illallah. And the first evidence we had covered last week was the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي أَدْعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى بَصِيرَةِ Say, O Muhammad, that this is my path, and I call to Allah upon insight. I call to Allah. We highlighted that this is an indication of ikhlas, that the da'wah, it is done sincerely for the sake of Allah. And ala basirah, upon insight, insight covers various points. One of them is of course knowledge. A person needs to have knowledge, al-ilmu shar'i, knowledge of the religion. Without that, you cannot claim to have insight in the da'wah that you are giving or attempting to give. Another aspect of the insight was who you are addressing, the audience. It is from basira, from insight, that a person addresses the audience in the relevant manner depending on who they are, who he is addressing. And we came across that point in the hadith when the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen. He gave him that type of insight by telling him that the people you are going to go and give da'wah to, they are Christians and Jews, Ahlul Kitab, so that Mu'adh ibn Jabal would be upon Basira in giving that da'wah, that he would have a knowledge of who the audience are, what their level is, what their background is, so that he can direct the da'wah to them in the appropriate manner. And then from the insight, connected to those affairs that we touched upon last time, are the affairs of wisdom in giving da'wah, in knowing the different levels of the people, the people who may be commoners, juhal, do not know of the affairs, then you're going to speak to them in a manner that is different to someone who has some knowledge, and is attempting to discuss and debate with you upon evidence, different levels of the people, different types of the people, and so you will address them in different ways. All of that is from the means, and the aspects of having basirah in giving da'wah. So then in the hadith of Ibn Abbas, that we also covered last time, when the Messenger وسلم, sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari to Yemen, 
to give da'wah to the people there and to call them to tawheed, the Prophet ﷺ informed them to begin with what? With the tawheed, to begin with shahadatu an la ilaha illallah, to call them to the core and the foundation of the religion to begin with, to tawheed, just like the Prophet ﷺ himself, gave the da'wah to the mushrikun, to the Quraysh, by beginning with that tawheed, by telling them to abandon the worship of all others besides Allah, and to worship Allah alone. When the messenger said to them, Ulu, la ilaha illallah, tuflihu, say, la ilaha illallah, and you will be successful. He called them directly and immediately to the Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so likewise, when he sent the companions to the various lands to give da'wah, the order was to begin with the principal and foundational aspect of the religion, which is Tawheed, the kalimat la ilaha illallah. And then he told them, if they accept that, in whom ata'uka if they obey you in that, if they accept Tawheed, then tell them, فَأَعْلِمْهُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ then tell them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has obligated upon them five daily prayers. Meaning, if they accept Tawheed, then move on and tell them about the other pillars of Islam. Prayer and then zakat. But if they didn't accept Tawheed from the foundation, then even if you told them about the prayer and the zakat and they did it, it would be null and void. Their prayer would not count for anything. Their zakat would not count for anything. Their fasting, their hajj, other affairs of the religion, none of them would count for anything if they do not accept Tawheed to begin with. Hence the messenger told them, begin with that tawheed. If they accept it, then you go on and inform them of the pillars of Islam, of the prayer and the zakat, and that is an indication upon the remainder of the fasting and the hajj. And then after that, we got to the narration that we are on now which is the hadith of Sahal ibn Sa'ad radiyallahu anhu anna rasulallahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama qala yawma khaybar that Sahal ibn Sa'ad radiyallahu anhu mentions that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said on the day of Khaybar Khaybar 
This was at that time a fortress of the Jews. They were in control of that area at the time. وَكَانَ بِهِ And the area was known for greenery. Khaybar under the control of the Jews at the time, it was known for its greenery, the palm trees and the fields that were there. And to this day, it is still known as Khaybar. That area is still known as Khaybar. And كانت بلادا It was an agricultural land. Khaybar was an agricultural land. Within it, there were palm trees and dates were grown in that area. And to such an extent, they have a saying, يُضْرَبُ الْمَثَلُ فَيُقَالْ كَجَالِبِ التَّمْرِ إِلَىٰ خَيْبَرِ أَوْ كَجَالِبِ التَّمْرِ إِلَىٰ هَجَرِ يعني أن الذي يأتي بشيء إلى بلد هي تنتج ذلك الشيء يصبح كجالب التمر إلى خيبر. It was so well known for its greenery and its agriculture and its growth and the dates that they used to produce that they made a parable or an example by it. And they said... It is like the one who brings dates to the people of Khaybar. And perhaps one of the closest English expressions that they have for this would be, it is like, or it is as though you are going to sell ice to the Eskimos. When they say you're going to sell ice to the Eskimos, They mean by that, that your action makes no sense. How are you going to take ice to the Eskimos? They are the ones who give you the ice, not that you take it to them. And so much so was the production of dates and greenery and agriculture in Khaybar. They used to have a saying, when you do something that makes no sense because you're trying to do something that the other person actually does, or you're trying to take some product to an area, and they are the ones who really give you that product, then they used to say, it's like you're trying to take dates to Khaybar. You're trying to go and sell dates in Khaybar. They are the ones who produce the dates for the world, not that you're going to take dates to them. So that was Khaybar. And of course, this hadith now talks about the incident that occurred in Khaybar when the Muslims went there, potentially for a battle that may have occurred in order to conquer that land. So when this incident occurred and the Muslims went to Khaybar, it is mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ said, لَأُعْطِيَنَّ الرَّايَةَ غَدًا رَجُلًا يُحِبُّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَيُحِبُّهُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ يَفْتَحُ اللَّهُ عَلَى يَدَيْهِ 
In those days when they would go into battle, one of them would carry the flag of the army. The leader of the army would carry the flag of the army so that all of the army knows where the focal point is of that army, where the core of that army is building from. So that one man would carry the flag of the army. The Prophet ﷺ tells them that he was going to select one of the companions and give them the flag to carry in as the leader of the army when they go into Khaybar. This was the night before they were going to go in. So you see at the beginning of the narration that the Prophet ﷺ made that statement with three points of emphasis. It wasn't just a passing comment, tomorrow somebody's going to get the flag of the army. It wasn't a passing comment. It was something that the messenger mentioned with emphasis. Not one point of emphasis, not two, but three points of emphasis. Two of them are obvious. La u'atiyanna. The lam at the beginning in Arabic indicates emphasis. The noon at at the end indicates emphasis. Where is the third point of emphasis there? La u'atiyanna rayata. Where is the third point of emphasis? Anyone? The third point of emphasis is that there is something muqaddar here. For those learning Arabic, you know about those affairs. There is something muqaddar in the simplest sense. There is a word which is not there, but you know, you perceive, you understand the meaning of it being there. What is that word in this case? It is the oath. Wallahi! By Allah, I am going to give the flag of the army tomorrow to a man, and then it continues. So we have an oath. We have the Lamut Tawkeet, and then we have the Noon Al Mushaddada Lit Three points of emphasis that certainly, indeed, by Allah. I am going to give the flag of the army tomorrow to a man who loves Allah and his messenger. And Allah and his messenger love him. So two points are mentioned there. Whoever this man was going to be, that the messenger was going to select to be given the flag of the army, it was going to be someone who loves Allah and the Messenger. And more importantly, it was going to be someone that Allah and His Messenger love. And we know that because the Messenger has testified to that here, that whoever gets that flag tomorrow, by the testimony of the Messenger, he is someone who Allah loves, and the messenger loves, 
Because as the Salaf they used to say, لَيْسَ الشَّأْنْ أَنْ تُحِبْ الشَّأْنْ أَنْ تُحَبْ It's not really the point, they used to say, it's not really the point that you say you love Allah and His Messenger. The real point of it is that you be someone who Allah and His Messenger love. Everybody will claim their love for Allah and His Messenger. But how many of them are from those whom Allah loves and His Messenger loves? So now this was a testimony from the Messenger. Testimony. Whoever gets the flag will be certainly someone who Allah loves and the Messenger loves. So now... With that testimony there, of course, all of the companions desired to be the one who this testimony applies to. To be the one who is loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that they mention about Umar ibn al-Khattab that he said, I never ever wanted to be in authority. Authority never bothered me. Never wanted to be in authority or to be in leadership. No care for those things. But that night, he said, I wanted to be the one given the flag too. Not because of the authority or leadership, but because they all wanted to be the one who gains this testimony that Allah loves them. They all wanted that. So here when the Prophet ﷺ tells them that tomorrow I am going to give the flag to a man who loves Allah and his messenger and Allah and his messenger love him. Yaftahullahu ala yadayhi that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will cause the conquering of Khaybar to occur through him. That Khaybar will be taken through him, through that man who then leads in with the flag of the army. And so the point of this, the Shaykh says, al-Shaykh al-Fawzan, fal-hasil, أن ميزة محبة الله ورسوله للمؤمنين موجودة في كل مؤمن ومؤمنة عموما Generally speaking Loving Allah and loving his messenger And even Allah loving a believer is that something which can generally apply to the believers as a whole, to different people? Yes. If you are a person of taqwa, you are a person upon iman, a person upon obedience, you are from those whom are beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So generally it applies, it can apply to the one who is upon taqwa, is upon righteousness, is upon obedience, abandoning the sins and the wrongdoings, etc. It can apply, generally speaking. But here, there was something more than just generally speaking. Here was an absolute 
precise testimony for one person. And that's what they all wanted, the precise testimony that they are definitely someone whom Allah loves. So, وَلَكِنْ شَهَادَةُ الرَّسُولِ وسلم, uh, But the testimony of the messenger for that particular person was something specific. يَفْتَحُ اللَّهُ عَلَى يَدَيْهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to cause the conquering and the taking over of Khaybar through that person. And that is another virtue then for that person who is given the flag of the army. This incident at the beginning of the narration highlights the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ. How he foretold the victory that the Prophet ﷺ is telling them the day before. Tomorrow, whoever is given that flag, then it will be victory over Khaybar through that man's hands. Through that man who takes that flag, victory will occur. That is from the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ and from the signs of the Prophethood. Alamah min alamatin nubuwa. Haythu inna rasula sallallahu alayhi wa sallam akhbara amma yahsul fil mustaqbal waqad hasala kama akhbara bihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told them what was going to happen before it happened and it happened as he said this does not mean that the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had knowledge of the unseen. It does not mean that because the problem with those who deviate and become misguided, one of the issues is that they will often see an authentic evidence as this hadith is, Bukhari Muslim hadith, and they will misinterpret it to end up at a false aqidah. So now they may see this narration and say, look, the messenger knew what was going to happen already before it happened. He knew that the victory was going to occur. This therefore proves he had knowledge of the unseen. We say, no, it does not prove that. Why? One simple principle the scholars have mentioned. If a person uses an evidence... An authentic evidence, a hadith or an ayah, and it seems to show something. What is one of the ways to explain to them the reality of the meaning of that one particular evidence? To put it into the context of the remainder of the Quran and the Sunnah. Because one of the issues with those who become deviated is that they take evidences in isolation. They find one hadith somewhere, one ayah somewhere, authentic hadith, ayah from the Qur'an, and they derive their rulings from it, by itself without having that evidence in the context of the rest of the sunnah. 
That's one of the differences between Ahlul Sunnah and Ahlul Bid'ah. Ahlul Bid'ah take a specific evidence here, there, ayah, hadith, and it's authentic, and they derive their rulings from it. When you look at the evidence they've used, by itself it looks like their explanation is perfectly okay. When you look at the evidence by itself, you can't really say why their explanation is wrong. Here they found this hadith where the Prophet knew what was going to happen. So they say he has knowledge of the unseen. From this hadith, on the surface of it, you may think, okay, how do we explain to them? No, that's not the case. Maybe this hadith, how they are explaining it, seems to be okay. And there's no real opposition to it within the narration. But that's because they are using the hadith in isolation. When you put that hadith into the context of all of the Qur'an and the sunnah, then everything together makes sense. Ahlul sunnah, that's what we do. Put everything together in context to understand all of the Qur'an and the sunnah. Ahlul bid'ah, those who become misguided, do not. They find an evidence in isolation and try to make their rulings of that. So now this hadith, they say the Prophet knows the unseen. We say no, put it into the context of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you will find, for example, clear ayat in the Qur'an, clear and explicit that the Prophet ﷺ did not have knowledge of the unseen. For example, لَوْ كُنْتُ أَعْلَمُ الْغَيْبِ لَسْتَكْثَرْتُ مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَمَا مَسْتَنِ Ayah in the Qur'an where it is referencing the Messenger to say, if I had knowledge of the unseen, then no evil or... or, or then I would have done much good and no evil would have ever come to me. If you have knowledge of the unseen, you know what's going to happen everywhere before it happens, then no evil would ever occur to you because you know that some evil is going to happen there so you don't go. If you had knowledge of all of the unseen and the affairs of the unseen, you could do much good and you could save yourself from any harm. And yet we know that this was not the case, and the messenger is saying, if I had that, then I could have done this. And the reality is, as it is known, the messenger did not have that, and that's why he was not able to do those things. An example of it in the battle of Uhud. In the battle of Uhud, what happened to the Prophet wasallam? When Khalid ibn al-Walid, in those days he was not Muslim yet, when he came back around after the archers came down from the mount, and he came back around and they began attacking again, a missile struck who? The messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was wearing his helmet, a missile from the, the, the Quraysh, from the mushrikeen, some stone or, or arrow or something that they threw, some missile came and struck the messenger on his helmet. With force, 
such that it bent the helmet in and it broke his tooth. And he fell down. And they began saying, Muhammad has died. Began shouting amongst them, he's been killed. And of course he had not died. But the point being here, the scholars have mentioned, if the messenger knew the unseen, would he be stood there to be hit by the missile and for his tooth to be broken? Certainly not. Certainly not. Indicating he does not have knowledge of the unseen. So when you put it into the context of all the other evidences, then the real meanings become apparent. And the misinterpretations of the people of misguidance become apparent that this hadith is not a proof that the messenger had knowledge of the unseen. And that is because there are other evidences explicit in the Qur'an, in the sunnah, showing that he did not have knowledge of the unseen. So here then, this is something specific that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him that knowledge gave him that this is from the miracles and the signs of the prophethood that he was aware that victory was going to occur from the alama of the alamat nubuwa so when the people all of those companions and everyone who was there when they heard the messenger telling them tomorrow somebody is going to be selected to take the army, the, the flag of the army in. All of them, they were very happy at this glad tidings. They were very happy at the glad tidings that the messenger was telling them victory would be for the believers. And they were also happy at the testimony that somebody would get that they would be from those who are beloved to Allah. Fabatu. لَيْلَتَهُمْ وَفَبَاتَ النَّاسُ يَدُوكُونَ لَيْلَتَهُمْ أَيُّهُمْ يُعْطَاهَا So then that night, all of them, they spent that night trying to work out and to discuss who might be the one who is given the flag tomorrow. Because they all had a great desire not for leadership, but to be the one who gets the testimony that Allah loves them. They all had that desire for it, so they were all discussing and talking. What could it be? Who could it be? What could be the criteria who gets chosen? They were discussing and analyzing this affair. And this is something common and known amongst the companions. And there are multiple narrations of this type of thing. When the Prophet ﷺ would inform them of something, and they would then go away discussing and analyzing that affair and researching into it, because of their great desire to actualize what the Messenger had informed them of. Like in the hadith that we already did, when the messenger told them 70,000 will enter paradise without accountability and without any punishment. So now that's a great virtue that all of them desired. So they were discussing and analyzing and talking amongst themselves. Who could it be? Maybe it's those who were born upon Islam. Maybe it's those who became Muslims early and did the hijrah. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. 
for their desire to come to that conclusion and to have that virtue that the messenger had encouraged them of. So here the same thing. They were discussing who could it be. And the statement of Umar ibn al-Khattab is mentioned by a Shaykh al-Fawzan. Umar ibn al-Khattab said, مَا تَمَنَّيْتُ الْإِمَارَةِ إِلَّا هَذِهِ اللَّيْلَةِ I never ever wished for leadership to be put in charge except that night. I never ever desired or wished for leadership or to be put in charge except that night. Umar ibn al-Khattab says, he desired to be given the leadership, to be given the flag, and that the conquering and the victory of Khaybar would occur through him, so that he could achieve that distinction of being someone who certainly is beloved to Allah and His Messenger. Then it mentions in the hadith, فَلَمَّا أَصْبَحُوا When they woke up in the morning, غَدَوْا عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. They went early in the morning. غَدَوْا يعني ذَهَبُوا إِلَيْهِ مُبَكِّرِينَ They went to him early in the morning. And then, كُلُّهُمْ كُلُّهُمْ All of them يَرْجُوا أَنْ يُعْطَاهَا All of them were hoping that they would be the one who is given the flag. فَقَالْ So then, the Prophet ﷺ said, he's now going to tell them who's going to get the flag. He says to them, Aina Ali ibn Abi Talib. Where is Ali ibn Abi Talib? Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiyallahu anhu, when the Prophet ﷺ had left with the other believers, when they had headed out of Medina to go to Khaybar, at that time, Ali ibn Abi Talib had some type of eye infection. And he was unable to go with them. He had some type of eye infection, some type of eye disease at the time, and he was unable to go with them. And so they left Medina. The Prophet ﷺ left, the companions, the believers left with him. And Ali ibn Abi Talib was left behind, he couldn't go because of this eye infection that he had. But after they left, and he was still in Medina by himself, he was unable to burden it. Unable to burden what? He couldn't burden the fact, he couldn't bring himself to ease with the fact that the messenger and the other companions have gone out in this great 
action of jihad in the path of Allah to Khaybar, and that he was left behind and he wasn't participating. He couldn't bring himself to accept that. So it's mentioned that even with his eye infection, and he had a, some type of serious problem, they say he had even, in some of the narrations, he had wrapped some uh, type of cloth all around his eyes, closed up his eyes. Such was the level of the infection, some type of cloth wrapped around all over his eyes. But in whatever way, he managed to leave Medina and catch up to them. He couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it to stay behind and the messenger and the companions have gone. Even with that level of illness and infection, he went and he caught up to them. So when he caught up to them the next morning, when all of the others went to the Prophet ﷺ, he obviously was just in one of the tents or whatever it was. He hadn't gone out because of this infection and because his eyes were all wrapped up and closed up. So when the others went and he wasn't there, he remained in the tent or wherever it was. The Prophet ﷺ said to them, where is Ali ibn Abi Talib? And this, the scholars say, highlights to you the, the impact of the decree of Allah. That all of these other companions who were at the time fit and healthy and strong, and all of them desired to be given that flag, and all of them had gone out with the messenger initially, the one who was perhaps in the situation the least capable, the one who hadn't even gone out with them initially because of this problem, had only caught up to them later on, hadn't even gone out with the rest of them in the morning to the messenger, had to stay back, eyes wrapped up. That the decree of Allah is such, He is the one who the messenger is going to choose. And so the Prophet ﷺ says to them, Where is Ali ibn Abi Talib? So they say to him, فَقِيل هُوَ يَشْتَكِي They said to the messenger, it was said to him that he has a problem with his eyes. He is complaining about a problem uh, to his eyes. He has an issue with his eyes. فَأَرْسَلُوا إِلَيْهِ فَأُتِيَ بِهِ So they sent some people to go and get him. He was there somewhere, now he'd caught up to them in one of the tents or something. They sent someone or sent some people to go and get him. فَأُتِيَ بِهِ So he was brought. And the scholars, they say, this is perhaps an evidence to indicate that his eye problem was so severe that he more than likely had it wrapped up with some type of garment over his eyes to keep them away from the light, etc. Such that, utiyabihi. Utiyabihi, they had to bring him, guide him, hold him, and show him the way, and guide him to where the Prophet was. Utiyabihi. He had to be brought. The scholars say, he had to be brought. He couldn't just come himself. Because his eyes were closed up with the garment, with some type of bandage. And so he couldn't see, he couldn't walk. They had to go and bring him. So when they bring him, فَبَصَقَ فِي عَيْنَيْهِ 
So then the Prophet ﷺ spittled into his eyes. The Prophet ﷺ spittled into his eyes. فَبَصَقَ فِي عَيْنَيْهِ أي تفل من ريقه الطيب الطاهر في عيني علي ابن أبي طالب Spittle is the small amount Small amount, not spitting Spittle, the small amount which comes out So the Prophet ﷺ, that small amount He spittled into the eyes of Ali ibn Abi Talib And it is mentioned he made dua for him Made dua for his recovery And the hadith says فَبَرَأَ كَأَنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ بِهِ وَجَعْ that he was then cured as though he had never had any ailment, as though he had never had any issue with his eyes. Completely, 100% cured. And they even say in some of the uh, explanations uh, from the history that Ali ibn Abi Talib never ever for the rest of his life got any problem in his eyes ever. His eyes remained upon 100% health, for the rest of his life, never any issue in his eyes ever again. So this is again from the miracles of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Min mu'ajazatihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hatta qala Ali, in fact the Shaykh mentions it was Ali ibn Abi Talib himself who said in some other uh, narrations and events, لَمْ يُصِبْنِي رَمَتْ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ that this disease in the eyes never occurred to me ever again. يعني استمر هذا الشفاء طول حياته رضي الله عنه ببركة ريق رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم. That the cure it remained with him for the rest of his life from the barakah of that spittle of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم and the dua that he made for him. This again now may be mistaken by some people and misused under the topic of At-Tabarruk, which we're going to get to a complete chapter on that topic, seeking Barakah. Nowadays, as some of the misguided ones do, go to the Imam and wipe him and he will wipe you and Barakah will come off you or come off him unto you, all these things they do. And what we mentioned before, about people when they go to Hajj, they take a jar with them, and when they are in Arafah, for example, that empty jar, they fill it up with the sand from Arafah. Bring it home, put it on the mantelpiece, and they say that jar of sand has Barakah in it, it is Arafah. Arafah, is it a place of Barakah? Yes, Arafah, when you do Hajj, Arafah is a place of Barakah. That soil is from Arafah, he filled it up there. They bring it home, put it on the shelf, on the mantelpiece, Barakah in the house now. We have Arafah in the house now. Of course, completely false. When they cut from the cloth of the Kaaba and bring it back, frame it, Barakah, we have the cloth of the Kaaba. Barakah. That's what they claim. 
So here people may say, look, the messenger spittled into his eyes. And from that barakah, he was cured, which is true. And the shaykh says, وَلَا that the baraka from the Prophet, from the Prophet from his spittle or from the sweat or the wudu water, that was legislated and there was baraka in those affairs from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَهَذَا خَاصٌ بِالنَّبِيِّ sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is something specific to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That is something specific to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. أَمَّا غَيْرُهُ فَلَا يُتَبَرَّكُ بِشَيْءٍ مِّنْهُ As for other than the messenger, then you do not attempt to seek barakah from them. They used to joke that some people in some places, when somebody goes to hajj, one of their community goes to hajj, and he performs the hajj and he comes back, then everybody wants to touch that person. Hajj, he's full of barakah, he's come back, his body is full of barakah. And so they want to take some of the barakah from this hajji, who's come back now full of barakah all around him and on him. And of course the shaykh says this is not correct. You don't go to the imam and the peer and the maulana and wipe him and barakah will come off him onto you. So the shaykh says no, that was something specific to the Prophet wasallam. If it was something allowed from others, from the Mawlana, from the great Imam, from this person, that person. And again, Allahu Alam, if this is true, but they say that some of you may have seen that individual from Cyprus, known amongst the Sufis, they were selling his wudu water. There were posts, Allahu Alam, if it was true or not, but they were selling apparently in some posts his wudu water. Whatever the prices were, I don't remember for one bottle, 200 mil or something or 100 mil of his wudu water. Baraka. The water has baraka in it. The great imam, this was his wudu water. And I saw one, again, cannot be independently verified, but I saw one, there was an advert and I think it was a 5 series BMW, a black one. And they said, this car, the actual market value on it, it was an old one, I don't know how many miles, maybe a couple of grand. They said, this car, 6,000, 8,000, 15,000, I don't remember. Why? Old car, high mileage, no service history, what's going on? They said, this is the car that the Maulana used to sit in. From the house to the mosque for the last two years. This was the Maulana's car. He sat in those seats in the car. So this car is not no 2000. Don't tell me about no service history. This is the Maulana Baraka in this car. He sat, he touched the leather in this car. 
he touched the cup holders in this car. Baraka. So now the point is, we're going to get to that in a proper chapter later, but the point here is, the Shaykh says that is not correct. The messenger, the companions used to do that, and that was specific to the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If it was allowed for anybody else, then who would have been the best of the people after the messenger to go and seek barakah from? Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali. Did any of the companions ever go seeking barakah from Abu Bakr? Taking his wudu water and barakah, taking anything from him barakah? No. So this was something specific to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As for others, then no. And as for other objects that have not been specified, any trees or stones or tombs or shrines, then of course all of that is false. And trying to seek barakah from those affairs is false. And we'll get to that in a specific chapter, a few chapters away, inshallah. So here then, he was cured. And then the Prophet raya gave him the flag of the army. فقال, and he said to him, Unfuz ala rislika go slowly calmly don't rush in take the army carefully steadily take the army carefully and steadily and this again shows that the waliul amr that was the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam there gives the instructions to those under his authority, advises them, guides them, and they are to follow in that and obey that. And the Prophet ﷺ now appointing Ali anhu with the flag, is giving him the advice and the instructions on how to go about doing what he is to do. So he tells them, go there calmly and steadily. Not... As you may expect, an army running and flags and swords in the air and shouting and noise. Not like that. Calmly. No screaming and shouting. No loud noises and roars. Nothing. Calmly go there until you get to the edges of their area. Until you get close to their vicinity. And then when you do, when you get close to their fortress, it was a fortress the Jews had there, when you get to that area, when you get close to them, then what do you do first? Islam. Then call them to Islam. And this is something you find in the narrations about when they used to go to battle in certain places in the seerah, it is mentioned. When they used to go to battle in certain places, they would not just go and attack. They would go and give them da'wah. And then it's mentioned in some of the narrations of Sirah, after giving them da'wah, they would wait to see if they hear them making adhan. They would wait to see at the next prayer, let's see if they make the adhan. Because if they do, it's an indication they've accepted the da'wah. So the Prophet said to them, go calmly, 
steadily, no shouting and screaming, calmly, and then call them to Islam. Ud'uhum ila al-Islam. Fahada fihi dalilun ala wujub al-da'wati ila al-Islam. Wa anna al-adu yud'a qabla an yuqatil. Wa la yubda' bil-qital qabla al-da'wah. So this is an evidence that there is an obligation to give da'wah to Islam and that the enemy is given da'wah first before any fighting. Not that you begin the fighting first before you've given them da'wah. Rather you give them the da'wah and you call them to Islam which is the submission, al-istislamu lillah. Submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon tawheed, submissiveness to Him to uh, follow the commandments and the obedience and to purify your worship for Him and to abandon shirk and its people. Call them to that. وَأَخْبِرْهُمْ And tell them, the Prophet tells Ali, and tell them, بِمَا يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْ حَقِّ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى Tell them about the rights of Allah that are obligatory upon them. And that is a reference connected directly to the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal. Tell them of the rights of Allah that are connected to them. And those rights, of course, begin with Tawheed, the oneness of Allah and singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Call them to that, call them to submission to Allah, call them to Tawheed. Fawallahi. Then the Messenger tells him, Because by Allah, لَأَنْ يَهْدِيَ اللَّهُ بِكَ رَجُلًا وَاحِدًا خَيْرٌ لَكَ مِنْ حُمْرِ النَّعْمِ Because by Allah, if Allah guides via you one man, then that is better for you than the red camels. Notice that the messenger said, لَأَنْ يَهْدِيَ اللَّهُ بِكَ That if Allah guides one man through you, So guidance is from Allah. The messenger didn't say, if you guide one person, if you guide one person, it will be better for you than the red camels. The messenger did not say that. Didn't say, if you guide one person. He said, if Allah guides one person through you, because of you, because of the da'wah you give, Allah guides someone then it is better for you than the red camels. And that is because we know that the guidance, the hidayah, is of different types. Overall, you have the hidayah, or the guidance of ad-dilala wal-irshad, where you guide the people to the truth. Then the other type is the hidayah to tawfiq, the inner guidance. Can you give inner guidance to anyone? You cannot, all you can do is show them the straight path, show them tawheed, show them sunnah, warn them against shirk and bid'ah, that's what you can do. Are they going to accept what you tell them or not? 
That's not in your hands. You do not have control over that. Maybe there's a thousand non-Muslims, you give them da'wah. Explain everything in detail and only one from the thousand accepts. Who is guided? You do not control. And that is just as Allah said to the Prophet in the Quran, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتِ You cannot guide whom you love. Guidance, that inner guidance of the heart is from Allah. So that's what it's talking about here. That if Allah guides one of them through you, through the da'wah that you give them, then that will be better for you than the red camels. Why are the red camels mentioned here? Because at that time, this is an example being given. And the scholars, they say, when the messenger used to give them examples, he would give them relevant examples to their time. And so at their time, red camels were from the most valuable of possessions. They were the luxury asset to own. Red camels. So the Prophet is telling him, one man guided through you is better than the red camels for you. Showing the great virtue of calling to Tawheed, the great virtue of calling to the, uh, uh, the Shahada, to the Kalima of La ilaha illallah. A Shaykh al-Fawzan says, Unzuru madha haqqaqa. Allahu min al-khayri bisabbi da'wati Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. Rahimahullah. An example the Shaykh says, look at the great level of goodness that Allah actualized, that Allah decreed occurred through Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, for example. The great amount of goodness that occurred through Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and his da'wah. وَمَنْ اِهْتَدَى بِسَبَبِهِ مِنَ الْأَجْيَالِ أَلَّتِي لَا تَزَالُ إِلَى الْآنِ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ And how many people from the different generations were guided through his works up until this day. Up until this day, we study Islam through the books Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah wrote. Up until this day, we study Wasatiyah, we study Hamawiyah, we study Tadmuriyah, we study the various books, the various works of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, and people are impacted and affected by that. Personal example just came to me right now. The first book I ever read was a book of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. First book, and it had a great impact. A great impact, one of his small books on Iman. A great impact, it's in English. In the, in the olden days, a small English, they used to be printed by Darus Salam, those beige-covered ones. They have that cream color. Those books, maybe they're still around. That book, that book was the first one I ever read. And it was an amazing book. An amazing book with things that you've never heard elsewhere. And you come across this tawheed, this aqidah, purity from the evidences. And you realize something, you realize the reality of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent in this revelation, this religion. And so the shaykh says, look at the impact of the da'wah 
of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, for example. And then he mentions the hadith, مَنْ دَعَا إِلَى هُدَى كَانَ لَهُ مِنَ الْأَجْرِ مِتْلُ أُجُورْ مَنْ تَبِعَهُ لَا يُنْقُصُ ذَلِكَ مِنْ أُجُورِهِمْ شَيْئًا That whomsoever calls to guidance, then he will have the reward and the rewards of those who follow him upon that guidance, those who are guided through him, and it will not decrease from their rewards. It's not like their rewards are taken down so the first one can get them. They get their reward. But the one who guided them also is a portioned reward from that. So this is from the great virtues of da'wah. And the shaykh, he mentions some examples of how some of the scholars, they were punished in the past, they were imprisoned in the past for their stance upon this da'wah and calling to tawheed. And the virtue of the da'wah is clear. Therefore, what is the main evidence from this hadith applicable to this chapter? Remember, the chapter is about calling to Tawheed. So why has the Shaykh mentioned this hadith about Khaybar and Ali here? The scholar said, such is the virtue and the need to give da'wah, such is the virtue and the need, the necessity, the requirement, the obligation to give da'wah, that even in a situation of jihad, Battle, you don't start until you give da'wah. So what therefore, when you're not in any battle, not any problem, not any fight, nothing, even in the circumstances of battle at your doorstep now about to occur, you start with da'wah to them. Call them to tawheed, call them to la ilaha illallah. And then if and whatever occurs from that point, the situation proceeds from there. That brings us to the end of the chapter regarding calling to La ilaha illallah. The next chapter is going to be some further explanation regarding what La ilaha illallah is. In order to clarify and to explain the reality of La ilaha illallah. It is basically a chapter which is going to give you the tafsir, the explanation of La ilaha illallah. And it's not as simple as the misguided or the incorrect translation, there is no God but Allah. There is a lot more to it than the people think there is no God but Allah. It is a lot more complex than that to understand the reality of Tawheed the reality of the meaning of la ilaha illallah and that's what we'll do from the next session insha'Allah ta'ala the next session as well um, it's possible as you're aware there are some there is some talk occurring that maybe there might be some lockdowns and things happening again so keep up to date with the social media, with the groups and things to be uh, uh, informed of what's going on with the lesson uh, if any of those things do transpire. And it's possible, it's very possible with Wales and uh, Scotland and those places already announcing it. 
it's very possible there may be some announcements for England. So keep up with the social media, the Twitter account and other WhatsApp groups and Telegram associated to the Masjid so that you're aware of what's happening with the lesson. But uh, we'll see inshallah ta'ala. Any questions up to there then? Not particularly here now. Taqwiyatul Iman. You can read it, it's in English, and you can find the benefits and tell us, inshallah. Anybody to the class, relevant to the class? Uh, regards to, you know, some people that they take, like the soil or the things from maybe some uh, blessed areas like Arafah, like you mentioned. And if you know someone like that, what should they do with it? Should they just throw it away? No, the thing is, that's what we said before. If you know somebody doing some sin, some wrong, some bid'ah, your changing of that circumstance, it goes back to the narration about the one who sees the evil. Man ra'a minkum munkaran Change it with your hand. But changing it with your hand is only if you are in a position of authority to be able to do so. If you're in a position of authority to be able to do so, like the leader of a country or the, the man of the household, the father of the household, otherwise you could not just go into a cousin or somebody's house and take their items and things. It would not be possible. If they were to accept what you're saying, and then what should they do with it? Should they just get rid of it? Well, if they accept what you're saying, then uh, just get rid of it into the garden, into wherever. Get rid of that soil, no problem. It's possible. Some scholars, they say, because the Zamzam is a blessed water. So some of them have mentioned you could do that. But the, 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 the core of it as a water is for the purpose of drinking. That it is for what you drink it for. So you drink it and it can be uh, with the intention of certain, you know, you're drinking it for, from illness or whatever it might be. The drinking is the asal. And uh, other affairs, they are outside of the origin of drinking the water. Even for illness, you drink the water. It's not a necessity or requirement to wipe the water anywhere. Drinking is the asal of it. Everything else comes uh, with discussion on the side of it. There is, but I don't remember where or the authenticity. So that can be a homework. There is. There is a narration about one of the companions drinking the blood. But uh, where is it and the authenticity, I don't remember. I believe it's Muharra, but Muharra isn't a primary source. So you'll have to go and check and find it. Somebody find the narration. Is there a hadith or a narration where one of the companions drank blood of the Prophet There is, but where is it? Bring it to us with the references next week. Anybody else? Ruqya has its uh, explanations of how you do it and what you do. Like, for example, in water, you could do so. You know, there are some scholars who mention doing that in water and with other affairs in the water and then drinking that water, but they differed over. Some scholars they allow that, some scholars they do not allow that in using those kinds of means. The basic means and methods are clear 
about the recitation there, you do touch the person upon that area, whatever the area may be, recite upon them. Spittling is mentioned in some forms, like for example, when you do your du'as before sleep, the spittle and then wiping over the body, where it is mentioned, then okay. But where it's not mentioned, then there's differences that occur, especially in the field of ruqya, how you can do it and how you don't do it. Spittle into water and drinking it and onto a person, they are not going to be affairs that are agreed upon. You'll have differences over them. Even the famous one about the water, there are differences over it, whether you can uh, uh, read into water or put the leaves into water and then drink that water as a means of ruqya. Some scholars allowed it. Ibn al-Qayyim allowed it. But other scholars, they do not. Anybody else? About the barakah. No, we were talking about the barakah, about taking barakah from the messenger, from his spittle, from his sweat, from his uh, wudu water. That barakah, that was taken specifically from him. Others, I mean, Isa alayhi salam, when the discussion comes on to Isa alayhi salam, etc., it becomes a separate discussion because it isn't part of this ummah and this sharia. So Isa alayhi salam, yes, he may have, he was given miracles, no doubt. He was given miracles, various miracles that are mentioned in the Quran, no doubt about that. But in terms of the legislation and what is permissible and isn't permissible, that's going to be taken from the Prophet ﷺ and this Sharia. Isa ﷺ had his miracles and they are separate, the miracles he was given compared to miracles other Prophets and Messengers were given. Anybody else? I don't remember. Same homework for you. Bring us the hadith. Bring us the hadith. We'll have a look, inshallah. Hmm. Last one, anybody? Or we conclude upon that? Go on. Absolutely. That's a very good point. If the Shia. They bring you this narration and they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only loves Ali radiallahu anhu because the testimony was given there to Ali radiallahu anhu. That would seem to support their evidences and their positions. But there are narrations. There are clear narrations about the virtues of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman so what are we going to do with all of those, firstly? They have an explanation. The Shia have an explanation, they have a rad. They say all of the narrations about the virtues of Abu Bakr, and there are authentic narrations, uh, uh, virtues of Abu Bakr, of uh, Umar, of Uthman, radiallahu anhum, all of those were from before they apostated. So they say, 
All of those virtues, yes, yes, but they were before they apostated. But like we said briefly, the love of Allah, clearly when you look at all of the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, is not restricted to just one person. Cannot be. It's not like that because of all the evidences that mention how Allah loves the people. He will bring a people whom He loves and the, the, the awliya of Allah, those who are upon taqwa, there are many narrations indicating how you achieve the love of Allah. And this is one of the sifat. It is a sifa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-muhabba, that He loves and He is loved. That He loves and He is loved. And that kind of thing is mentioned more in wasatiyah and the books of the sifat. But there is no, there is no doubt that Allah, His love, for the believers is in no way restricted to Ali radiallahu anhu. Rather, it is open to all. Any believer can be from those whom Allah loves. If that believer fulfills the criteria required to be from those whom Allah loves, by fulfilling all of the obedience to Allah, staying away from the haram, being upon iman, taqwa, etc. All of those are means to be loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when you look at all the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, it is clear, crystal clear. It is impossible to say that Allah's love is restricted to Ali. And then what therefore of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam? what therefore of Ibrahim, who is the Khalilullah, what therefore of all the other prophets and messengers, and what therefore of all the other virtues of the companions, the Rad of the Shia is obviously useless that this was after, uh, before they apostated, obviously not. All of that is valid and there. So when you see all of those evidences, it is clear. It is impossible to claim that the love of Allah is restricted to one person alone. This is just a testimony. A testimony for Ali in that circumstance there. It is not a negation of the love of Allah for others. It is not a negation of the love of Allah for others, but simply a specific testimony at that time in that narration. For Ali, he was given a specific testimony there. But how many other narrations are there where we have testimony of the messenger that companions are going to be in paradise just last week? The narration, make dua that I am from them, anta minhum. There are companions who the Prophet said they're going to be in paradise, testimony. How can they be in paradise if Allah does not love them? So when you put the evidences together, it is clear love of Allah is not restricted to one man. Cannot be. All the people and the believers who are going to enter paradise, they are going to enter paradise, but Allah does not love them. They are not beloved. They are not righteous. They are not upon tawheed. Impossible. So this is again a case of them taking an evidence in isolation and ignoring everything else and therefore coming to their conclusion. All right, we'll conclude upon that for today then. And like I said, keep up with the social media this week to see what's going on with the updates. إن شاء الله تعالى صلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم